This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble Union Square, please give a warm welcome to Colson Whitehead and Miwa Messer. You know, oh, hello, people in the back row. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Port Over, and obviously you know the guy sitting next to me, National Book Award winner, Pulitzer Prize, two Pulitzer Prizes. And, you know, reading Coulson is always a trip, right? Because you never quite know exactly what you're going to get. But... I don't often get to sit down with a dude with that many awards and, you know, so many best-selling books and da-da-da-da. Having watched Cleopatra Jones, Blackula, Poseidon Adventure in 1972, I almost hit an airplane movie and then I was like, uh, maybe I should dial it back a little bit. And um, Earthquake, which do not watch that. It's not worth it. Even though he mentions it in the book, don't do it. And I will own it. That was the second time I'd seen it and I should have known better. So, Coulson... How do you do? Thanks for Hi. coming, everybody. I didn't even get to the good movies like Serpico or Chinatown. No, I just did the cheese. And again, I, let me be clear, I was re-watching. Okay, I have no defense here. Absolutely no. I cannot say the dude with the Pulitzer got me to watch. How do we describe them? Well, I mean, uh, you know, black exploitation is black exploitations, and, yeah. and there's okay. early... Uh, 70s disaster movies, but they're all exploitation fare of right. different kinds, exploiting trends. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 60s, it would have been biker movies, beach movies. Okay. Mid-70s, you get some Supernatural after The Exorcist. Which I still actually haven't seen because it just freaks me out too much. I can do gross, and I can do cheese, and I can't do horror. I, like, I can't do actual horror. It's just... Yeah, don't well, what do you think of, of Blackula? That's not really horror. No, 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 that's cheese. I yeah, think of yeah, that yeah. as straight-up cheese, but The Exorcist? No, it's not happening. Can't do it. Crime novels, though. Harlem Shuffle, Crook Manifesto. You actually wrote a sequel. You've never done that until this book, right? No, yeah, I mean, um, I've never had a character or a world I wanted to okay. revisit before. After Sag Harbor, the novel, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, what if I followed him? this teenage character in his 20s. And then the person I was seeing at the time was like, no one wants to read that. And I got kind of depressed. And put that aside. And then um, with Zone 1, I really, you know, after I finished the book, and I was like, oh, maybe not the main character, but I'll visit the world. There are some supporting characters, like uh, The Quiet Storm, this survivor of the zombie apocalypse. But I got distracted. Right. But with this one, I felt, you know, in the middle of, in the, middle of the book, I kept coming up with capers and jobs, and mm-hmm. so um, I knew it would be two books, and then if you do two, like what's a twosome? It's not like a thing in a series. So okay. it has to be a trilogy, so okay. it became a trilogy quickly. Okay, so we meet Ray Carney and his family and his in-laws who drove me around the bend when I was reading Harlem Shuffle, and that's on me, not on them, but Elizabeth's parents, man. So we get the whole world laid out for us, right? in Harlem Shuffle. We're in New York in 59, 61, 64. Okay. You don't actually have to have read Harlem Shuffle to listen in on this conversation we're about to have with Crook Manifesto. And I know a couple of people had asked that through Eventbrite and everything else. And the reality is, no, I mean, it's fun if you have, but Crook Manifesto really stands on its own. And now 
were in New York in 71, 73, no, 71, 73, and 76? Yes, indeed. Okay. Can you talk about New York in the 70s for a second? I can tell some of you probably know what New York in the 70s look like, but there are some around you who I can guarantee do not, and I know they've been on YouTube and I know they've seen the footage, but would you set up New York in the 70s? Well, I was born in 69, so mm -hmm. my first memories are, are of a very dingy, dirty New York. I think there was this atmosphere of fear. Yeah. I've, I sort of internalized. Each time you go out, mm -hmm. the door you're engaged in some kind of combat. And it's a perfect you know, background for, for Ray Carney. Crime is at an all-time high, and the city is bankrupt. And um, you know, in picking 71, 73, and, and 76, I'm trying to find different moments in the city's history that can make some friction. And so uh, you mentioned Serpico. Yep. I was a, a kid growing up watching matinees on Channel 5 and Channel 9 and Channel 11. And I remember seeing the Taking of Pelham 123 on a matinee and also Serpico. So it was cool to have this, the movie version of this uh, crusading cop's life and then go back to the original Peter Moss book about him, to go back to the Knapp Commission's uh, report on police corruption. If you know the story of Serpico, he's tattling on um, uh, his corrupt comrades in the police force, and there's a big task force. And so I find a, a year, and I try to focus on something that can work for Carney, and then build it out from there and make it realistic and hopefully uh, fruitful. One of the things I love about both of these books is it's really, you can read them as novellas, right? Both Harlem Shuffle and Crook Manifesto, you can read them as a series of three novellas sitting within one book. So here we are, right, and Ray gets pulled back. I don't really want to call it the underworld, but let's say he, he's shown his little bit of bent side, right? He's a little... Well, there's that, that trope in, his, yeah. you know, in a crime story where somebody wants to go straight, mm -hmm. uh, somebody wants to go legit, and then they pull him back in. So it's fun to you know, see what I want to keep from the tradition and throw out right. and have fun with. Because most crime novels don't involve the Jackson Five. I mean, not even Chester Himes, certainly not Iceberg Slim. There's a lot of pop culture. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's my bent. And yep. so, uh, you know, hopefully you're, you're picking a reference that can move on different levels. And mm -hmm. so, in 71, the Jackson Five are these, you know, supernaturally gifted young kids. But there's a false front, the same way that Ray Carney and other characters have a false front. We know from later revelations that his, his father's abusing them. We know that Michael Jackson will be abusing kids. And so there is that rift between the face we put out to the world and what's actually happening. And then um, in the second section, there's a, a black exploitation shoot in Harlem. And, um, and then I really sort of get to get my sort of pop culture in and have fun with the genre. And also people like Richard Pryor, who in the early 70s was about to blow up. His concerts were becoming bestsellers. And he's doing black exploitation movies like the hit with Billy Dee Williams uh, before he gets his sort of later 70s fame. So pop culture is important to me, and then if I can sort of figure out how to weasel it in, I'm really happy. And the bicentennial. Well, well the, yes, well, we, uh, the idea of ourselves versus the reality. So um, obviously, 1776 and 1976, the bicentennial have different meanings for different populations, white and black, and I have a lot of fun with that. I'm... Okay, so we've set up New York as a character, right? It's not just Ray, it's not just Elizabeth, it's not just May and John, the kids. Pepper's back. I was so happy to have Pepper back. And then you whacked him with a 
baseball bat. I'm not giving anything away, because Pepper... Uh, Pepper is a uh, sort of older criminal. He, he ran with um, Ray Carney's father, who was also a crook. You know, when we first meet him, there's a flashback to World War II. So he's getting a little, you know, a little creaky uh, come the 70s and um, doesn't take hits as well as he used to. But he still takes them. Part of what I love about both of these books, too, is you're talking about class and race and change and masculinity and all of these big sort of serious literary fiction kind of moments in a crime novel. And I love that. I love the idea that we don't have to subscribe, right, to a certain form of storytelling. And you'd been reading Richard Stark. There feels like there's a little Elmore Leonard in this stuff. Yeah, maybe. Well, I think in humor, I mean, I didn't go back to him, but right, okay. I definitely internalized him in the 90s when I was starting to read detective fiction, crime fiction. Right. So Ray Carney is kind of growing up as New York. I don't want to say New York is growing up, but New York is going through some massive changes. Well, you know, I mean, um, New York is a character in the book, and I hate it when people are like, the city is almost a character. No, like, it really is. Like, Dub- <laughs> like Dublin in Ulysses is almost a character. But I realized halfway through Harlem Shuffle, yes, New York is a character. And the same way that Carney is going, he's having mm-hmm. his ups and downs. Uh, so is the city. From the World's Fair in 64, this time of optimism, to the doldrums of the 70s. And then, you know, there's a, a third book that'll take place in the 80s, and we come out of the fiscal crisis. But again, at the end of the 80s, there's... Uh, the height of the AIDS crisis, um, another Wall Street crash, mm-hmm. and the crack epidemic. So I am charting you know, the ups and downs of, of Carney's life, but also the, the, the city, this other well, character. And Gabriel Bump, actually, who's a young novelist I really love. He's got a new book coming out in November. But he compared Harlem Shuffle and Crook Manifesto to August Wilson's Century Cycle. And if you know what I'm talking about, it's the 10 plays that cover Pittsburgh and the black experience over the course of the 20th century, and they're amazing. If you ever have a chance to read them, please do. And actually, I think it's really accurate. I think it's really, really accurate. You're doing this sort of sweep and scope with jokes, okay, maybe more jokes than August Wilson. For me as a reader, I get to sit with the narrative in a way that I might not necessarily, like it's one thing to see one of the Century Cycle plays on stage, right? It's a really kinetic experience and and there's movement and there's dialogue and everything. And you bring it all to a novel. I mean, it's a a new venture and and challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, If you pull back, maybe it's not three books, but one 1,100-page story, Mm -hmm. following one character for 30 years. Um, Each novel has three stories that come together Voltron-style to make a, a novel... You know, each novella has a beginning, middle, and end. And if you pull back, you know, Harlem Shuffle is the first, is act one, and mm-hmm. Crooked Manifesto is act two, and then I'm winding things up in the third book. And so, you know, it's, it is a complicated structure. Once I realized, I started the second book, I realized I should probably plot out more and plot the third mm-hmm. book. And uh, Harlem Shuffle was at the copy editor, but it was still open for changes, so I was allowed to take things from the third book and the second book and seed them in the first book, because... I was locked in the house and watching Inception again. And I was like, oh, you know, he's really good at seeding the end in the beginning. And I was like, but you do that too. Maybe you should do that for the whole trilogy. And so I was able to sort of figure out the ending and, and 
hopefully plant some seeds in Harlem Shuffles. Yeah, there were a couple of characters who, when they popped up in Crook Manifesto, Zippo, I'm thinking of, and also Elizabeth's childhood friend. And I will say, when Elizabeth's childhood pal, I had feelings when that guy popped up. But it's nice to sit in this world. Like, obviously, I'm very attached to Pepper. Yes, I'm attached to a gangster. It happens, okay? I mean, y'all read the book, too. But for you, coming back to this world, I, like, I still can't get over the fact that you wrote a sequel. You're talking about 1,200 pages in the life of the city, in the life of a man, in the life of a family, in a community. And I'm also hoping you don't do that Peter Matheson thing where he goes back and takes the three volumes of Watson's life and then writes the book he actually meant to write the first time. Can we just have I'm not familiar with that analogy, oh, but, uh, okay. but, but uh, I won't do that. Okay. No, no. Well, the Watson trilogy, does anyone, am I dating myself? Oh, I'm so dating myself. But the Watson trilogy was Peter Matheson's sort of magnum opus set in Florida. And maybe 10 years after it came out, he just took it all together, rewrote it, and won the National Book Award. All right, well. So, but you have one of those. Well. <laughs> okay, but... Let's go back to this world for a second, because here you are working with a code, right? Like there's this language of the sort of respectable, I guess, upper class, like Elizabeth's parents, right? And then you've got Ray's sort of dad and Pepper and that whole world. Like there's all, you're working on two levels at any given moment, right? There's the, there's the slightly bent and then there's the, the very bent, the murderers, yeah, I mean, you know, embezzling some minor pornography versus murder and... I, there's a lot happening. There's a lot happening. But you're not mapping this out on index cards and sticking them on the wall, are you? No, I used to have like a carry notebooks around mm -hmm. and then I lost one and I was devastated. I, I, I was flying on JetBlue and I put my notebook into the... Why did I do that? So I got, got to the hotel, I was like, oh my God. But I, was such a, I have such a great memory, I'm going to recreate everything I put in the notebook. So I got another new one and I you know, through a furious act of mental acuity, recreated, and then went back to the airport the next day and they'd found the notebook and I compared the two and I was like 10% of, of what was in the book. So, so um, now it just goes into phone, goes into cloud, okay. wake up at you know, 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm like, boy meets girl, you know, uh, it's there. But how do you build a code for gangsters? You know, before they, I'm a big outliner, and before mm -hmm. I'm starting each new section, novella, chapter, I'm figuring out what, what Pepper's going to do, what Carney's right. going to do, what are the motivations. And so, uh, before I know how they're going to do the fried chicken heist, I know that, what it means. I know mm -hmm. what, the, what the heist means to, right. to them. So, um, there's, there's a lot of planning. You know, there's mm -hmm. some people are like, the muse comes through the window and guides my hand, but as New Yorkers, we know that the, the muse is trapped on a seven train. There's like a track fire. So I have, I have to outline a lot of people in Brooklyn who write, they'll be you know, competing for the muse, so. Well, also crime novels need structure, right? Because otherwise it's just complete chaos. And it's actually a little hard to read when it's that chaotic. Well, I think you can tell when, when they're making it, making it up as they go along and mm -hmm. it's really a real drag. All right, I want to go back to, to this idea that there's a nobility and a morality to dudes like Pepper and dudes like Zippo and dudes like Ray Carney. They have a code, right? It's almost like this weird knighthood 
of dudes who do bad things. Well, that's the crook manifesto. You mm-hmm. know, what will you do uh, that would, that's within your moral uh, limit, and mm-hmm. what won't you do? So there's a character who is burning buildings down for insurance money, um, and Pepper, our sort of amoral, moral center, is like, I'm not going to judge you, but mm-hmm. I would never do that. But he will, you know, commit incredible acts of violence and steal various things. But there is this hierarchy of crime, and I think, you know, when I say pull back from story to story and from book to book, we're forced to think, you know, how bad is Pepper? How bad is this character compared to these, you know, larger scale crimes? I'm looking at an Eventbrite question, and I have to say, it's making me laugh. What do you think Ray Carney would be doing if he was coming up in today's world instead of the 70s? I try to be open and riff in those kinds of situations, but I, I, you know, I'm so, he's so set in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that I have no idea. Sorry. <laughs> I don't have anything clever. Uh, you know, I don't really see Ray as a computer guy, so I just, yeah, I mean, and sooner or later your body gives out. Like, we're seeing this with... Pepper's got some creakiness, his back is not doing, you know, I mean, it's... Well, I think, you know, I, I love heist movies like mm-hmm. Ocean's Eleven, but the high-tech stuff, I, dip, I definitely did not want to engage in. It's kind of a cheat. I like mm-hmm. the, the sweaty guys in bad suits and sweat stains hunkered over the, the safes, you know, with their stethoscope. So definitely a low-technology crime world is what I wanted from the very beginning. There's more serendipity, I think, too. I mean, if you have a cell phone right and you can figure out exactly which turn you were supposed to take and when you went right, you were supposed to go left kind of thing. The situations that Ray ends up in, certainly in the first novella of Crook Manifesto, Munson, <clears throat> Munson's back. You can't have that kind of thing if there's a cell phone in your pocket. You can't have that kind of thing if there's a pager on your hip. Like, you kind of have to be able to float free form as you're going to do you know, all of the different stops that they're No, making. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, people who are writing crime and detective and thrillers now have mm. a big sort of problem that they set them in the contemporary moment. Oh, you know what I wanted to ask you? Did you ever read Bridget Davis's World According to Fanny Davis? Her mother was a numbers runner in Detroit. <laughs> no, no. And I meant to ask you that earlier when we were in the green room. I was like, oh, you might want that one. Um, because I know when you're doing the research, right, there isn't a lot of literature, right? Like, Fences don't go out and write their memoirs. There actually are two books. Uh, oh, the seriously? The Fence and The Professional Fence. Okay, now I know. Written by a sociologist in the early 70s, and they were really helpful. But there is a lack of fencing literature and also right. fences in pop culture, and so it was sort of open territory. You know, I always like to find stuff that hasn't been done. My first right. book is about elevator inspectors. Uh, I beat everyone to the punch on that one. And Luckily for us. There's not a lot of competition for fence mm-hmm. literature either. So, Okay, but fences, too, tend to be the people who are sitting in the background, or they're, just, they're not the sexy roles, right? No, they're definitely the character actor. Yeah. You know, um, if you look at John Voight in Heat, he plays like a fence fixer. Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy. But they seem to have like, sandblasted his face. Like, no one, no one, you know. That movie has not aged well. I, oh, I still I, dig it. I still dig it. I... I I used to love that movie, and I watched it again recently. I forgot Al Pacino kept doing the. He started getting big in that. Oh, you know, there was a lot. Yes, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of scenery, and I was yeah. like, oh, I didn't remember this part. Well, you know, the seventies, you know, some of the seventies movies touch tones are Serpico and Dog mm-hmm. Day Afternoon, and he is this really contained actor. Is Al Pacino here? Like these are <laughs> I don't want to. I, I never want to insult anybody. <laughs> and then yeah, he does get bigger in the nineties, definitely. It. I th- didn't he come after Scent of a Woman? 
I, never, uh, I don't know I which so, yes. one. Yeah. One of them fed the other, and I was like, hmm. It was, yeah, it was after, yeah. Okay. No disrespect, we love Al Pacino, but there are certain performances when you see them on the big screen. To, so this was a remastered 4K version, and I think that was part of it, where I was like, oh, I don't think I'd ever seen Heat on the big screen until that moment, and I was like, this is a lot. Yeah, I saw it opening day. Okay. But masculinity, Pepper's relationship to Ray, Pepper's relationship to the world, Ray's relationship to Elizabeth and the kids, and the kids who work in his store, right? Freddie's son is now working, his cousin Freddie is now working in the store. And Ray just wants to be dad, and yet... Yeah, I mean, family yet. is very important to him. It's definitely mm -hmm. huge in the, in the Harlem Shuffle, coming from a, uh, a place of being a real loner and then assembling a family unit, uh, a wife who loves him, you know, having kids and having a nice place to raise them. And then, want to have a family business, but do they want to work in the store? Like, they work in the store, but do they want to carry on? Can this family unit make him whole? Mm -hmm. And then there's Pepper, who is a, you know, sort of sociopathic isolate, who becomes inducted into... Carney's family bit by bit is like an uncle, a weird uncle. Um, what does he see in Carney and the life he's, he's built up? And so I give Pepper, you know, his moment mm -hmm. uh, in the sun in the, third, in the second section. Mm -hmm. And I get to examine crime and also family and the city and the counterculture through his eyes. I love the fact that Ray's kids keep calling him Uncle Pepper and he keeps saying, you have to stop doing that. You just have to it stop. It irks him. Yeah, and you know, I would call him Uncle Pat. If I were those kids, I'd be doing the same thing because they have no idea, right? They're not following him around, watching what he's doing. There, he's he's the weird uncle at dinner. But building this community and deciding who comes back from earlier books, right? Like Zippo was a choice. I happen to love the second section. I happen to love all of the movie stuff. It's very very funny. I was not thrilled when you brought back the ventriloquist in the club. Can we leave the puppets out of it, please? <laughs> Am I the only person who's creeped out by ventriloquists? Okay, no. All right, thank you. I get an amen in the back because I, I can't do puppets and I can't do ventriloquists. But everything is so clean and so clear and so alive and so corrupt. I mean, not an inch of... Anything. I mean... No, if, if there's an organization or a system, it's probably corrupted in this book. And so, I guess that's my point of view, or is that the way the world works? I think it is, but I'm not supposed to say that out loud, or I don't know. I sort of feel like, for Ray, that's how the world works. I mean, it still strikes me, and having read all of the books that you've written, including Noble Hustle, I have read the poker book. And poker is not my game, which is why I bring up the poker book. It seems like you're having more fun with these books in the writing than maybe you were able to have with earlier. So even The Intuitionist, even the zombie novel, even Zone One, the zombie novel, it seems like you're looser on the page. I think, you know, um, humor is important, I think, in John Henry days and Zone mm -hmm. One. Yep. But definitely with the, the more serious books, Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys, mm -hmm. there's not that, that room. And then I think just built into writing a crime story now, unless it's like super grim, like serial killer thing, like Luther or something, like the fish hook in the eyeball killer, you know, something really incredibly grim mm -hmm. um, and Baroque. Uh, you have to have fun with it, fun with the stock characters. Right. There's a first wave of Dashiell Hammett and then a 50s, 60s wave of, say, Patricia Highsmith and Chester Himes. Uh, when I was 
starting to write in the 90s. It was a, a great time to read James Elroy and Walter Mosley and uh, Elmer Leonard. It's hard to do a crime story without some sort of irony or humor. Right. Um, a little bit of a wink. And it's a good opportunity for humor, which is part of my project. And so I feel very good. Okay. Is it Dumas or Dumas? Well, you're supposed to say, I mean, because I, I do both depending yeah. on... Who's what, talking? Yeah. Okay. So... Is I, there I, a proper I, I, pronunciation? I feel like they uh, would say Dumas. Okay. So we've got this Dumas club. It's where, a hoity-toity men's club right. for upper-crust black folk. And again, it just brings me back to this idea that you're running on so many different levels, right? There's the front of this club, which we learn many, many things about. There's the front of Ray just wanting to be a furniture salesman. I think part of him really does actually want to stay straight, and he just can't. But then you've got Pepper, who was never, ever going to be that guy, right? Like, he was just always going to be Pepper. No, yes, there's no, you know, reckoning. I think Pepper's engaged mm -hmm. in he is. He is who he is, this sort of force of nature. So he makes a good foil, because everything that's human in other people is this alien thing he's forced to confront. And so it's fun to write that kind of character and point of view. And then also, I think, forces us to consider our own customs and, and, their, and their strangeness. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about Ray's ambition and Ray's aspiration for a second? I mean, he really just wants to have a nice life. A nice apartment. He's a New Yorker, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, if he moves to the next nice apartment or nice block, he might be cured. He just wants a nice life. So why can't he go straight? Does um, he need to go straight? Does he really need to go straight? Uh, well, he doesn't in this book. Well, I know, but you have a third book coming. <laughs> yeah. I'm worried. <laughs> I'm worried that we're going to lose Ray's innate rayness. I mean, he, again, he's got a moral code. He wants to do the right thing, but he gets caught up in a lot of stuff. Well, I think what I do, what I'm engaged in now, because I'm in the third book, and I know mm -hmm. what, what's happening, you know, the sort of major plot movements, I do have to figure out who he is from where he is in 19, 1959 in the first 10 pages of the first book to who he is in his 50s. You know, his kids are one and two in the first book, then they're teenagers in the 70s, and then they're out of the nest. He has this nice townhouse in Strivers Row, mm -hmm. um, but it's empty now because his kids are off. Getting into middle-aged, Carney, what does mm -hmm. he want? You know, he's achieved success in his legit business and also his crooked business, so who is he? And who is Elizabeth? Elizabeth is also undergoing her generational change in this book. And in the third book, uh, where does she go? Where did she find herself in the 80s? Uh, a very smart woman who wants more and uh, not a sort of traditional role. So where does she go? So it's, it's just cool to, to map them and have a credible psychology for all these different characters over 30 years. And I really like the arc that you gave Elizabeth in Crook Manifesto. But I really, really want to know what's going to happen because I think it could... The way you set up what I think is going to be her story in the third book. I'll be patient, but how much longer do we have to wait? I want to slow down. It's, okay. Yeah, you know, sort of a grind, frankly. I'm hoping this AI thing will catch up and take this whole job out of my hands, but it's not there yet. There was another audience question just asking, how much of this is like your family's kind of experience? Like the stories your parents would tell you, right? about New York when they were young and that kind of thing and family members and family friends and all of that. And how much of it is just straight up research? I mean, you do do a ton of research. 
Uh, my family, my parents were kind of mum uh, okay. about various things. And so I, w- I was researching Harlem Shuffle and I was like, oh, the Hotel Teresa, I'll use that. Chock full of nuts. I remember chock full of nuts. I put that in the book. And then I would tell my mother, oh, yeah, I'm writing about the chock full of nuts in Hotel Teresa. And she's like, oh, yeah, I went there every day. I worked around the corner. Um, and I didn't realize that I was writing about my parents' Harlem. They were a young couple in the early 60s raising kids. But it was never, you know, the stories that he told me were not. Right. Um, I, I mentioned Blumstein's, which is a famous department store on 25th Street. My, and I was like, I'm doing a lot of research. I'm a real writer. And would write the scene and tell my mother, she's like, oh, yeah, your, your dad actually worked there for two summers like during college. So there is a real overlap. And 125th Street is the main drag, you know, that it still is today. Later on, I got some names of, like, you know, well-to-do black folks lived in right. so-and-so arms in the late mm-hmm. 60s in, right. in this building. Parkview Terrace, I think, on, like, 96 on Central Park West was, like, built in the, you know, sort of mid to late 60s, and that became a magnet for people going to Upper West Side. But a lot of it is, is this, you know, walking around. Is this where Carney might live or his office? Is this mm-hmm. a good place to dump a body? If you go on the... West Side Highway, you know, like mm-hmm. one, the 130s. Um, there are two elevated sections, uh, West Side Highway and also an elevated Riverside Drive. And beneath it is this whole warehouse district where there's no stores. This is this real sort of factory neighborhood. And that is like a perfect place to stash, put someone on ice for three days in a hostage situation. So find those places, like places I've never walked, and then I investigate, and maybe that's a, a, good, a good stage. I mean, when you think about how much change we've seen in our lifetimes in New York, like it's wild, right? Like just the neighborhoods that are gone or the buildings that have gone up and like <laughs> all of the very high rise glass buildings that are now around Union Square, it's a trip and they've all gone up in like 20 minutes. But uh, and 125th Street is definitely, you know, mm-hmm. Shake Shack and Gap. But if you go two blocks up, it's the townhouses from right. 150 years ago and they're right. still there. It's wild to see the evolution of New York, right? And to see it too on the page like this, and I mean, I, I've dipped in and out of the Colossus of New York. You did an essay collection years ago, almost 20 years ago. Oh, actually 20 years ago. Wow. Well, the first time I read here was like, 2000, this store was yeah. 2001 with Chuck Palahniuk. Wow, okay. Well, I'm still here, bitches. You know, <laughs> like, can't okay. get rid of me. <laughs> but I mean, how much of your own experience of New York, outside of the stories you might've heard, or and how much of your own sense of sort of change and time and age and all of the things that catch up with us when we walk by a storefront that's been 15 different things in 20 minutes, right? How much of that is informing what no, you're doing No, I mean, that, that's definitely there and the way Carney sees the city overlaps with the way mm-hmm. I see the city and I think you see the city. I think we all are seeing the city through this lens of change of who we used to be when we walked on this corner. The last time we were here, the store was this. Right. Now it's that. I wasn't around in 64 I was not very conscious in 73, but I can do New York because, you know, it's still the same city. Uh, We're still subject to the same pressures and forces, rich and poor, uh, black and white in the 50s and 60s and now. And I think, you know, in the Colossus of New York, there's a section about the subway. And I think the things I was trying to capture in that essay were the same in, in the 30s, you know, right. the hustle to get to work and being crammed. And, and they were the same when I wrote it in 2001 and, and uh, now in 2023. There's an essential character of the city that hopefully I can tap into and capture. 
you have an epic playlist that gets sort of mixed around whenever you're working on a new book. Obviously, Jackson 5 on the new playlist. No, no. no? I mean, I, I okay. have like a master playlist of like 3,000 songs. Right, okay. Um, and it's The Clash and okay. John Coltrane and Nina Simone and mm -hmm. Daft Punk. Really, the, 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 the music for the books never overlaps. Okay. I did... Uh, across 110th Street, Bobby Womack did yep. get inducted into the the master playlist. Okay. Because um, I did go back and watch that movie, Yafet Kodo, um, Anthony Quinn, black exploitation movie. There's a a, a, a 77 Shaft disco, uh, like seven seven minute long version of Shaft by Isaac Hayes, and that was like Underground Railroad. I was listening okay. to that Underground Railroad. So there is a there's a rift between okay subject and subject and content. But there's not necessarily a rift right now between us and the start of the third book. So, Coulson's going to read a little bit from the new book. Yes, so the first four paragraphs of the, <laughs> the new book, I'm only on page 52, and in this one, it's 1981, and Ed Koch is mayor. Remember, he used to say, how am I doing? Um, I don't remember the exact intonation, I have to research that before the book comes out. But there's time. So it's 1981, and we're coming out of the fiscal crisis. Various uh, municipal and federal interventions are taking us out of the 70s doldrums. In all of Ray Carney's years as a fence, he'd been a reluctant fence and a ruthless fence, at times harried and imperiled by his choices, at other times the embodiment of crooked intelligence. There was only one occasion when he participated in the theft itself, and that was in the summer of 1981, when Uncle Rich came back to town. That bad news time. The city that year was true to his personality, as malformed across the centuries. A monstrous entity powered by innate miseries, operated by brute will, and held together by pluck, fury, and rebar. It had been flat broke, and now clambered determinedly from the crater of debt, one mucky handhold at a time. Crime, in its ingenuity, devised new permutations daily, making every citizen a victim or a witness. New arrivals poured in hourly, as if there was room, multiplying the local varieties of sadness and perseverance, and outnumbering those who'd scurried to the suburbs or fled their last humiliation. It was dirty and sick and plain spoken in its threats. How am I doing? the mayor asked on his rounds, barking like one of the mangy seals installed at the decrepit and neglected Central Park Zoo, a real dump. It was his trademark. Everybody needs a gimmick. How am I doing? The same as everyone else, tired, banged up, but staggering forth somehow. As for Ray Carney, he was a son of his city, enduring his ration of misfortunes and managing to engineer a few reversals. The day the Uncle Rich mess came to a head, Tuesday the 16th of June, was already out of the ordinary in that Carney had a notable appointment. An interview with Sterling Quality, the monthly magazine of the Sterling Furniture Company. Carney had sold their products since he first opened his doors to budget-conscious Harlemites of contemporary sensibility and taste, to bright-eyed couples who strained cheerfully under the monthly payments, to geezers who set themselves adrift in living rooms on new recliners. Now, the company had chosen him as Northeast Regional Dealer of the Month, August. Carney jumped up and almost knocked over his coffee when he got the call. Across a lifetime, a man 
cultivates a number of secret wishes that he dare not share with the world, precious things too delicate to exist outside the safe pastures of his mind. To see his name flow and curl in the dignified typeface of the Sterling Furniture House magazine? It was a dream he'd held close for decades. He and Elizabeth celebrated with a dinner at this French joint off Lex, where the two tiny portions coiled on the big plates in insolent triumph. Oh, please. I get it. I get that you want to slow down a little bit, but... Oh, man, we're going to have to be patient. We're going to have to be so patient. But it will be worth it, as always. But I do have one tiny question. You're not going to do that thing where you slide in another book that you weren't planning on writing while you were writing the thing you were actually meaning to write. No, I can only do one thing at a time. Okay. Definitely. Okay, I'll sit quietly. I'll sit quietly. I can wait. Colson Whitehead, thank you so much. Thank you, Mila. Thank Thank you, everybody, for coming. It's very sweet of you. Thank you all for joining us. Take care. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.